Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's aviation podcast series. If you have not already done so, please check out our extensive archive of past shows, either on the Wings Over Cambridge website or on iTunes. Please rate the show on iTunes and leave a review there. And please like our Facebook page. You can find us at www.facebook.com slash show. That's W-O-N-Z-S-H-O-W. You can rate and review the shows there on Facebook, or you can go to the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, where there's a whole little section just for the show. This episode is part of the Wings Over Australia sub-series. The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi Warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. I remember some men started prying and others started crying um, partway through it. One guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spando up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And... New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I was crouched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Here are the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II. The Courage and Valor podcast. www.newzealandersatwar.com The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC-3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC-3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. 
Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. And I'm James Kitely, the host of the Wings Over Australia component of the Wings Over New Zealand show. And we're here with Murray Wallace. Hi. How are you? Great, great. Now, we're here at uh, Kyneton uh, again. And uh, yesterday uh, we were here talking with uh, Matt Henderson, who's a, a um, CD4 air trainer owner. And you also own an air trainer, Murray. Y- yes. Um, uh, I'm probably a little, bit longer time than Matt. I bought mine from the auction in yeah. 1993. Yeah. Yes. Uh, before we get into talking about the, the air trainer and your other aircraft here, can we actually just um, talk about your earliest uh, interest in, in aviation? How did you get into it? Well, um, I was born in 1938, which is obviously before the war. I lived in Cooktown in North Queensland, and um, when the war got hot, uh, when the approach to Australia was happening, uh, the Americans came out and they built quite a big airbase in Cooktown. And uh, I could see initially, the, in the old aerodrome, I could see the aerodrome from the house. Yeah. When they went further out, uh, there was out of visual range, but obviously there was a lot of flying, a lot of aviation activity went on. Yeah. There were ships in the harbour, uh, flying boats in the, in the Dever River, and uh, uh, that fired my interest. And I knew I wanted to fly from, from four or five. Wow, gosh. That's, uh, yeah, that's an early age to decide what you're going to do and, and go all the way through and do it. Mm. Yeah, I, I pursued it. Uh, the usual thing, air training corps. Um, I then um, joined the Air Force as a uh, apprentice uh, airframe fitter. Did uh, five years there. Uh, tried for RAF aircrew. Uh, was knocked back on education grounds. They'd raised the standard from from intermediate to uh, matriculation. Uh, and at the Euro Club, I had about 80 hours at that stage. Saw an advertisement for army flying. So I said, well, why not? Sent off a letter, and I didn't realise at the time, but um, it goes on seniority with the services, Navy, Army, Air Force, and they couldn't stop me leaving the Air Force to join the Army. Oh, right. That, that was, um, uh, I discovered that later. Afterwards, I tried to swap back from the Army to the Air Force, and they said, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, no, you can't, you can't do that. Well, right. probably, they're yeah. probably stopping you on double-dipping as well there, Murray, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 could have gone, you could have gone to a junior service if you were going to a higher rank. Right. But I would have been a cadet to a cadet, no. So uh, I went off and uh, flew Bell 47s and Cessna 180s for the Army for five years. Wow. Well, and tell me about the, the, the Army training when you actually started flying training with the Army. Well, I joined the Army in 61. We did the usual three months sort of square bashing, sort of indoctrination, and then uh, went to Point Cook and joined up with an, a normal Air Force course and... Uh, uh, did 125 hours on wind drills, which was really one of the highlights of my life. Enjoyed that tremendously. Okay, so the wind drill, um, that's an interesting aircraft and it's native to Australia and it's, uh, you know, we have a, one or two of them in, in New Zealand, but um, just tell us, tell the listeners a little bit about the wind drill because there's a lot of people out there that don't know a lot about it. Well, it's, it was obviously designed as a replacement for the Tiger Moth as a basic trainer, uh, 450 horsepower radial engine, uh, supercharged, uh, 
the good thing is someone was paying for the fuel. Yeah. And that, that did help a lot. I, I've never forgotten that, uh, that I think after paying and saving up to go and fly Tigermouth at the Aero Club, you know, two weeks of savings, sort of no girls, no, no good times for an hour. And uh, um, all of a sudden there was someone here giving me a bed, giving me food and giving me an aeroplane for four trips a week. And they were paying me as well. And I thought, this is just too good to be true. <laughs> and actually, I mean, another difference is they, were push, they would be pushing you along. I mean, the military would always oh. they're asking you to do more and more aerobatics formation and so on. Yes, when you think about it. Uh, uh, there was a 25-hour test in the windshield, and part of that was um, um, a slow roll and a loop, uh -huh. uh, as well as the forced landings, the circuits. Yep. And you know, at the, the private licence standard, at about the 40-hour mark, uh, there was no comparison as to what you had to do. You expected a lot more of it. And the, the good thing I found, the Air Force had the attitude, oh, you've flown before, we've got to break all those old bad habits and teach you new ones. But, of course, the beauty about it was um, I went solo in the windshield at about three and a half hours right. um, because I had the experience. Yeah. And then I had another uh, 21 hours to practice all these manoeuvres. So you, Whereas your, your the, training had put you ahead? Yeah, oh, yes, you were. And, and the guy who went solo at 15 hours had 10 hours because he was busy learning circuits yeah. up at that stage. Yeah. But I could go out and, and practice aerobatics, the force landings, etc. I think a point to make here is um, when we're, this came up uh, when we were talking to Matt um, was that people sort of look at where you are now and they go, oh, you're very lucky to do that. But what people don't see is the sacrifices you make. I mean, you've just said, and mm. I'm just recapping really, that you chose to put all of your money as a, as a young man, not paid very well as a, as a trainee fitter, into learning to fly, which is expensive. It's always been expensive yes. because that's what you wanted to do. So, I mean, they see you today and they think, oh, he's done very well, and, and you have, which is great, but that started with a lot of self-sacrifice and discipline too, I think. Yes, actually, going on that, it was interesting. Um, I was at 10 Squadron as a fitter, uh -huh. and Lincoln's, that goes back a while, right. and uh, they were re-equipping with Neptunes, and yep. I was one of the chosen ones to go over to the States and do Neptune familiarisation and engineering. and. And the army said, yes, thank you, we'll have you. And a lot of guys in the Air Force said, oh, you're mad, you can have you know, six months in the States. Why yeah. would you want to go to the army? But no, there was obviously no, no, no choice to make. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So what happened after Windjeels? Uh, yeah. Well, initially Bell 47s. Uh, I did probably about two years exclusively Bell 47s. And then the army wanted a test pilot. Uh, so that meant sort of... A, Cessna conversion, right? Because I had an engineering background, that was yep. the idea of it. Okay, yeah. And uh, then uh, uh, I wasn't a mad keen helicopter pilot. I must admit, <laughs> so, uh, 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 to me, they 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 weren't a, a live creature like a, a fixed wing aeroplane is. Right. To me, you can feel the air over the wings. You, yep. And when you get those nice, cool evenings, yeah, and it's just so beautiful. Whereas a, a chopper is vibration, noise, yep. and not much progress. Yeah. You do have you do have interesting moments in helicopters uh, yeah. because they're much more complicated mechanically. Yeah. There's much more to go wrong, and and uh, uh, mainly during the test flying, uh, sort of, uh, I've had a few engine failures or a few things jam or that event. But fortunately, most of those things happen over the airfield, yeah. so you don't have far to, to go to yeah. to find a clear patch. Which is which is half of the battle in those yes, situations, yes, isn't it? Yes. I think just to interrupt Murray again here for a moment, one of the things that a lot of people outside the New Zealand forces and the Australian forces wouldn't realise is that 
um, most air forces, most armies around the world today and for the last few decades, you're either fixed wing or rotary. You'll, you'll be streamed very early in the process to fixed wing or rotary and not really have the, the, the diversity of that experience. Whereas a lot of the pilots we have in Australia, and I think New Zealand's the same, Dave, have a mixture of both fixed and rotary experience in, yeah. their, in their portfolios, particularly the military guys too. Yes, yeah. yes we had a roughly from going back to memory, 12 fixed wing, 12 rotary wing. Right. So uh, in, in general, you did stay on one or the other. That yeah. was the general th rule, uh, mainly because some of the, the older gentlemen in the, from the army, early army aviation ostracised, yeah. uh, come back as a uh, executive position yeah. and say, oh, well, I must go and fly one of this, these rotary wing things. <laughs> and uh, they, they never really, between their administering and, yeah. uh, and flying, they never quite did the full course, yes. then they'd scare themselves. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that, that sort of then, oh, well, we're going to well, specialise one way or the other, but they're so different. That, yes. that, um, and so I did a, probably about 500 hours straight rotary wing, and then it was like putting on an old boot. You know, you stepped in one, yeah. and your mind said rotary wing, yeah. you stepped in the other one, your mind said fixed wing, yeah. and there was no real problem. Yeah. Now, the um, Cessna 180 that you converted to at this stage, that would have been a fairly modern aircraft uh, for the military in, that, in those days, wouldn't it? it would well, yes, it probably was. Um, it replaced the Oster. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a huge step forward, really, uh, both in load carrying capacity, uh, speed, range. Uh, probably the only thing where they'd be compatible would be a short takeoff and landing. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. More comfortable, I guess, as well. Oh it? yes. Yes. No comparison. Yes. Worlds away. <laughs> it yeah. does have a heater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you've got the side-by-side -side seats as well. Yes. So, um, why do Osters? Do Osters have that as no well? No side-by-side. Yeah. That's yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a lot more elbow room and easy. Oh, I can say oh, from yes. the personal experience of, of Murray's, and we're yeah. actually sitting, we should say for yeah. the listeners here, we're, we're currently sitting in Murray's hangout, the beautiful Cotton Airfield, with the, uh, uh, the Cessna behind us and a couple of other fascinating aeroplanes we'll be coming to. But it's great to be in this environment. It's a beautiful day today as well, isn't it? Oh, Just, perfect, perfect so day today. Yeah. Um, in fact, we shouldn't be on the ground talking, we sh you should be aviating. <laughs> but here we are talking, and so the listeners can enjoy this as well. So, yes, the, the Cessna is a fascinating aeroplane as an army aeroplane because it's quite unusual to have a, um, a Cessna in the Army in this kind of role. H how did that come about? Well, that takes a little explaining. I only discovered it uh, a few years ago. We were at a reunion uh, for ex-Ambly Army people. Yep. And uh, there was an old gentleman who apparently was part of the purchasing department of the Army, an Army officer in Canberra. And uh, the Army had been allocated money on two occasions to buy aircraft. And uh, uh, each t occasion, when it got time to picking something, the Air Force came in and said, no, you can't have it. <laughs> and at this stage, it was coming up towards that crucial 30th yeah. of June again. Yeah. They had money in the piggy bank. Yeah. And uh, uh, I said, oh, you know, we're going to lose it again. They rang up uh, um, Rex Aviation, the Cessna agent, and said, what have you got? They said, we've got some 180s. They said, good, we'll have them. <laughs> so so I, I believe that was why it was chosen. There would have been a bit more thought about that because it was suitable. Yes, yes, uh, but uh, that but sounds like an acquisition process I can get behind too. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then, um, so they were, there we were with, with green, uh, green painted um, uh, Cessnas and uh, so you had quite a bit of time on them by the end, didn't you? Yes, yeah, so I ended up with about 1400 hours in them all told. That's uh, quite significant. Yes, yeah. it was enjoyable. I did about uh, oh, roughly 300 hours in New Guinea in them, which again was a uh, interesting time, really. Yes. Uh, yeah. 
you know, you, you did, you really learned to cope with weather. Uh, that was the main thing you had to cope with in New Guinea, sort of, uh, uh, this aeroplane was quite suitable for the strips. The only thing it didn't have was the climb performance to climb over the, over the weather, because, uh, you know, some of the, some of the hills there are 15,000 feet. Uh, I, th I think I'm no expert on, on um, Papua New Guinea um, operations, but I think even today, even for modern turboprop aircraft, the, the size of the mountains and the size of the weather you can get with those mountains, it's still a challenge, that kind of thing, isn't it? I mean, oh, it, it must be, because we basically tried to fly in the morning. Yeah. Uh, you, you started really at sort of first light and tried to finish by midday. That was, that was the aim. So what was the, uh, the types of missions or types of roles that you were doing with the Cessna in New Guinea? The, the, the whole thing really was reconnaissance and resupply. Uh, the, uh, we'd go into an area, at the time it was, uh, the Indonesians weren't very friendly. Right. So it was all western border work. Okay. And uh, you'd take in a, a patrol officer, uh, army, uh, and uh, he'd uh, do a reconnaissance of where he was going to take his, his, his troops. Then a caribou would bring uh, about 100 men in, uh, depends, sometimes a uh, uh, company commander would come in and set up a base camp, they'd drop off supplies, uh, the three patrols would go out uh, with seven days of rations, and uh, then uh, at about five days you'd go out and look for them, to resupply them with another seven days. But of course in New Guinea uh, that wasn't so easy. Uh, the maps weren't very good, there was no such thing as GPS. No, no. Uh, they usually walked down a, a river or a creek. That was how you had a bit of an inkling where to look for them. And the army in its wisdom had a, a helium balloon that they carried with them and they'd sent it up through the tree, jungle canopy. The only trouble was it was white. And of course in New Guinea you have a lot of low white misty cloud. Right. And how do you find a white balloon? <laughs> a small white so balloon in a large white cloud. Well it was a large balloon but small from an aeroplane. Yes. So uh, eventually sort of a they then went to a red balloon, which was a giant step forward, and uh, but still, it was a the communications were st I suppose for the time not bad. Patrol had a HF radio that they could radio back to their base in Wewak. Wewak could contact our base camp, and the patrol would say, "Oh, we heard an aeroplane, and he was to our north." You think, "Where do I? Where was I yesterday?" <laughs> sort of, and try and go a bit further south, and it, this sometimes they were getting back to rationing their food because uh, you, know, you couldn't find them. Yeah. And uh, eventually, someone discovered with our HF radio in the aircraft, we could put a new crystal in the set and we could talk directly to the army. And then, of course, it became simple. Right. They could hear you, they direct us, and th there they were. And that was the last, probably, the last six months. Okay. Yeah. It's really interesting because I haven't really heard too much about the border operations there. I've talked with people who flew the Caribous in, in and out and uh, a, a little bit later on, but um, it almost sounds like it was a war with no shooting almost. The, the conditions that you guys, well, and particularly the, the army troops, they, they were very much doing what they would do in a war zone. Yeah, I guess they, they were mainly really walking along and then contacting villages and saying, we're the good guys. They're the bad guys. Showing uh, so the flag, really, in a way, isn't mm. it? Yeah. Hearts and minds type stuff. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, I never saw it, but uh, apparently the Indonesians had a, a black-painted uh, B-24 that used to patrol up and down the place, and uh, what well, I never fired a shot. It used to do a few runs around the place. Okay. I, I didn't happen to see it, sort of. At, uh, I spent a lot of my time uh, 
either at uh, Wanamo, which was the army base, well, pretty well on the border, on the western border, uh, and then in through the highlands, through uh, various strips along the, the Sepik, and uh, then into Telefoma, which was in the high country. And then on the other side, there was Green River and uh, Nomad River, and oh, I've forgotten a couple of other names that come to mind. But so that was on the, on the Fly River. So, so some of these strips here operated out of, I guess, may have been there from World War II, uh, not really, the, only the main strips yeah. back on the coast. Uh, Weewak was a World War II, bomb craters everywhere in the still. Uh, Wanamo was a beautiful big strip to take a Hercules, uh, it was on the coast, but uh, it, it, well, I don't from memory remember there were any bomb craters there. Do you remember uh, if there were many wrecks of aircraft from World War II? Well, yes, uh, interesting. Uh, I, you saw quite a few around the place, sort of in patches, swamps, etc. And uh, uh, what was interesting, uh, there was a B-17 uh, in what was called Bootless Bay at Port Moresby. And uh, it used to be called the, uh, the Bootless Bay ILS because heavy rain, you'd come down the coastline, following the coast, till you saw the wreck, you turned left or right as the case may be, and you had a heading, and then there, there was Jackson Field. <laughs> Very convenient, <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> One day someone removes the aeroplane and everyone's completely lost. <laughs> um, but that, that's, uh, that's really interesting. And um, I've worked with you a little bit at the, um, the Air Force Museum's uh, interactive flying displays where you get to tell some of the stories to the people there and, and demonstrate the aircraft. And I think my favourite story is um, the mystery of the Army boots. Um, but that comes behind... When you were doing the supplies, you were normally doing supply drops, yes, weren't you? Just yes. dropping from wing panniers? Or just, no, it, no. Just, just free drop. Free drop, yes. so you'd shove stuff out. They, they developed a system and you used two bags. You put your rations, or whatever you're putting, dropping, yeah. in, in a bag and tied it up. And then you put that in another bag quite loosely. So when it hit the ground, it rolled inside the bag. And if something did break, it was contained yeah. in the outer bag as well. And that worked quite well. We'd uh, take a door off, uh -huh. uh, have a, uh, uh, usually the fitter, we'd sit in the, the back left seat, and uh, you'd come over and sort of say now, and you'd just kick it out. Right, and right. You'd do it from, well, it depended, though, in the trees, uh, yeah. could be could be 80 feet. Yeah. Uh, not aware of having a hang-up, because there was no parachute. It was just yeah. a bit of fall through the tree canopy. Yeah. But if they were in a, quite often they'd try and get into a, um, a village uh, patch of the, yeah. uh, the, or uh, just a kunai patch and right. then you drop from sort of, you know, 20, 30 feet or something sort of. Yeah. A, that's an interesting story actually yes. comes to mind. Uh, they were at one village that had never seen an outside person ever uh, and uh, they'd never con made contact and we dropped into their clearing and uh, as I'd come over you'd see they'd just scatter yeah. and go into the under the canopy. Yeah. But um, the uh, army people afterwards said that the, the moment we had uh, ration packs tied up with wire, bound with wire, and they said they just cut the wire and dropped on the ground. As soon as they cleared the area, they just jumped on this wire. They perceived that to be valuable, okay. but they'd never seen it before. <laughs> it, it's a very, I mean, in, in, in both senses, primitive world that you're operating, it's primitive operations if you're just pushing the stuff out of the aeroplane as opposed to using, you know, supply parachutes and such like. And also, yeah, very primitive conditions that you're flying in and with, with that, all of that going on. But um, you said, I think, if I remember rightly, that you often, you dropped an awful lot of boots for yes. the army. <laughs> yes, I think they must have been eating them. <laughs> sort of, uh, they had a, uh, a 
peculiar to, to New Guinea, um, um, quite a high canvas boot, yep. heavy rubber sole, and because they, they were walking up and up creeks all the time, that was the only place they could really walk, and they were in water all day long, sort of, yep. and uh, uh, we'd supply, we get an order in for, you know, a, a patrol, it usually was about 30 people, and uh, after seven days you get an order for sort of 10 or 12 pair of boots. <laughs> And I should imagine they were very, very important. I can't imagine oh, yes. trying to get through uh, New Guinea on a, on a river stream with probably uh, you know, rocks and the rest of it and um, broken branches without a good pair of boots that yeah. you can ride. Well, I think there was a grip, yeah. probably, so, yeah. because you know, the rocks were wet and they were slippery. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <coughs> Did the army have a, a nickname for the Cessna 180? You've got me there. Uh, the, the bell was a uh, Sioux. Yeah. Uh, I think it was just called the, the 180. I, I can't remember there being a, a code name for the aircraft. Okay. I think I've never heard of a, uh, it's an interesting point actually, I've never heard of a, I think they're always just the 180 or the Cessna sometimes yeah. in the context. Um, and that's an interesting point because generally the Australian military is given an official name and the Australian airmen of all kinds make sure that they get other names yes. too. <laughs> so yeah. the Cessna yeah. escaped on two counts really. I don't think it ever had a, had a nickname of... Yes, of course, it had a long enough career. And so uh, I'm not quite sure when it was actively uh, retired, but it, they were sold off in 75. And uh, the first ones came in in uh, 58 or 59, I think. Right. I yeah. think that's the date, sort of a... Because yeah. uh, I remember thinking, I joined the Army in 61, and I was very close. I didn't realise I was so close to the beginning of the, the right. re-equipment with the yeah. Bell and the, and the 180. Yeah, yeah. They were just the, the aeroplanes that were around yes, at the time, that's I suppose. what was there. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, um, a question I'd like to ask, um, we're looking at, at Murray's Cessna here, um, and it is a genuine um, uh, Army aircraft, we'll come back to that in a bit more detail, but what differences are there to a Cess standard Cessna 180 that uh, you know you might see in your local flying field? How did the Army um, modify or add to them? Well, fairly extensively really, because once again, because uh, I was with the famous hindsight there at the, near the beginning of it all, yeah. uh, they bought the stock standard 180 at the day. Uh, and then, uh, after a while, decided they needed battery radios, yep. uh, a bit more equipment, yep. and uh, um, they contracted Hawkeye Havland to modify them quite extensively. Uh, one of the things was um, Cessna brakes. Right. Uh, they were designed so that you couldn't tip it on its nose yep. because they were pretty poor, and we wanted short landings. Yep. So they actually put windshield brakes, oh, right. windshield brakes and windshield wheels on the aircraft. Uh, we've actually got a set in a box up there somewhere, sort of, but uh, the windshield tyres are very difficult to come by, right. so that's yeah. why we haven't fitted them. Yeah, okay. uh, but uh, the other thing they did, of course we were doing, um, the, the, the role was also artillery spotting, yeah. and the, uh, the method used was you'd fly below the treetops, the, the gun would say, uh, uh, time a shot, 25 seconds, you'd time it, pull up, and sort of and time to see the burst and then give them a correction. But of course that meant you were turning below treetop height, so they cut a panel in the roof and put a clear panel there. So right. when you were yeah. turning, you could see what you were turning into. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing they did really was they um, uh, installed a lot of radio equipment. Mm. Well, you can uh, see here um, uh, what would be a very uh, extensive aerial set for a, for a civilian aircraft by any yes. measure. Mm. Well, we had FM uh, for direct contact, we had HF, and uh, uh, we had, well, the usual VHF, of course, sort of, a, and the little antennas on the side, the whiskers, as we call them, cat's whiskers, they were for homing on the, on the FM radio set. Right. And that the, was the idea of that. 
They're the same uh, as are on the tail of the um, Cessna oh, Bird. On the Bird Dog, yes, identical. The, I think the radio is probably in the setup. For, the ARC 44 was the, the main FM set, and that, that got used extensively, sort of, you know, through the, the Western military at that period. But uh, um, that went away, and what was interesting, uh, um, the 180 as a civilian aircraft had an all-up weight of 2450 pounds. Yep. Uh, when the Army got them back, uh, with all the extra equipment, uh, there was no payload left. So being a service operation, uh, take it past an, an engineer, and all of a sudden you can fly to 2850 pounds, <laughs> which solved the payload problem. But of course, I didn't realise until much later that uh, uh, the crop dusters used to use them at 3100 pounds. So they were still well below what they had operated at. Yes. I think um, it's probably worth bringing in here, and you, you, you would um, be the man to say, but the impression I get is the Cessna 180 is a very capable aeroplane. It looks like a, a pretty standard light aircraft, but it's really a, 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 an air truck in its, in its capability for, the, for that era, isn't it? Yes. You put a lot of stuff in and haul it in and out of some pretty interesting places. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good bush aeroplane. Yeah. It was designed as that. Yeah. Uh, probably the, the better one would have been the 185 because it, it had uh, probably a shorter takeoff with more, more horsepower yeah. and a bigger payload. But they weren't but any on the pan at Rex Aviation at the right moment then? <laughs> well, I, I don't know whether they were around in then. I suppose they were. I guess they were, they were a development, really. You put a bigger engine in a, in a 180 and yeah. a bit of a stretch and you had a 185. The, the, the 180s, were, you mentioned um, the agricultural uh, versions. Did they use them here in Australia for top dressing? Oh yes. You did see them? Yeah, yes, they are well used here. Sort yeah. Of a yeah, I knew that we had them in New Zealand, but I just wasn't sure, so just thought I'd ask. <laughs> Actually, I met a gentleman who uh, at an air show, and he said uh, he was Cole Pays, called, you know, one of the original crop dusters here. Yeah. And he was Cole Pays' first employee. Oh. And he said one day he, he dropped 100 tonnes of super in a 180. <laughs> he said it was an aim to do it. Yeah, and, and, they weren't told to do it, I should imagine. That was, it was a half ton payload, or plus a bit, and uh, uh, he did 187 trips in the one day, he said, from absolute crack of dawn to ho coming home in the dark. That's crazy. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, I used to go low flying in the army, and after 45 minutes, you'd come back and say, oh, that was hard work. You know, and to think, <laughs> yeah. I admire the crop dusters when they, they look they at the way. really, yes. really hard, and in yeah. usually in very uh, uh, tough conditions as well. And, and as you say, it's funny, you look back, people do set themselves those targets, and they go for it, and they obviously yes. would have had a yes. team ready to every time he landed, to, yes. you know, turn him around as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. and I think we'll probably need a couple of beers at the end of that day, wouldn't you? Oh, yes. It's a staggering day's work. How you keep your concentration that long, flying low, I don't know. Well, even uh, the, the type of flying you were talking about before, flying at treetop level or below treetop level, uh, doing the artillery spotting, that must have been quite taxing on the brain after doing that for a while. It was quite tiring. Yes, yeah. I, we used to really only, only do it for uh, probably 45 minutes out of an hour, 15, 40. Yeah. Uh, and you came back and you thought, oh, that's, that's enough. Uh, you know, in your early days, of course, you're 21 and indestructible and yep. sort of let's go low flying. And when you get a, a bit older and a bit more sensible, you think, well, that was enough. Yes. Yeah. It was an era when uh, people did a bit more without stopping and thinking about it, too, I think, in those days, didn't they, compared to now? You know, you haven't got all the safety regulations and OSH type stuff. Well, yes, being military as well, you abided by the military rules, which were obviously freer than, than the civilian yeah. rules. Uh, you know, the, the criteria for our low-flying area that we had uh, near Ipswich, uh, that was near the Army Base, Amberley, yeah. uh, the criteria was really find an area with no power lines. And uh, 
of course, uh, some of our guys managed to find power lines. <laughs> sort of. The hard way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have any interesting experiences you'd like to uh, mention about your flying, particularly in Papua New Guinea? Because it must have had quite a few. I mean, weather closing in suddenly, unexpected mountains. Yeah, yeah, actually, it's interesting. We were fortunate in, in that uh, we never had pressure that you had to go. That was never a, a must-do. Uh, but uh, a few times um, you get caught by weather. I remember one stage I was um, near a place called Mindy in the Highlands. And I'd been out to do a drop and came back and uh, the, I was in a valley and the clouds had come down and I had to get over that ridge line and to get back to the strip. Yep. And I flew along the ridge line looking for all the little gaps and uh, no, there wasn't a gap so I flew back again. You begin to think, oh, and I, there were hills around the place at 15,000 feet. Uh, what do I do here? And then I saw a little patch of light and uh, dived through it and there was a strip. But of course the other thing that, um, that we were warned about in the very early days was uh, if you see a white patch in the cloud that could well be a limestone cliff right. and that had happened in New Guinea. People had said oh there's the gap I'll go through there and the piece of limestone cliff oh yeah, which wasn't well, a good I've decision. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, you, presumably you, in, in New Guinea you'd learn off the old hands or the previous postings and you'd talk to a lot of other pilots, civil and, and military, I presume, and pick up as much knowledge as you could if you wanted to stay alive? Y yes. Um, initially, when we've, the Army formed a detachment up there, uh, two aircraft and uh, three pilots, a detachment commander who stayed there permanently, and two pilots who came up on a rotational basis. Yep. And uh, the plan was to stay three months and then go back to your home base. But, of course, when Vietnam came along, Right. And they were short of people. Uh, I ended up doing one stint of three, nine months, three, three tours. The, um, the, the idea really was the three-month tour was they didn't have to send your family with you. Right. But of course you could extend the three months to another three months, <laughs> another three months. Yes. And my wife sitting back at the, at the Amberley is not very happy. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, now talking about getting back to your subject, yes, when the Army went up there, uh, they talked to locals. And then your detachment commander then built up, because he was there on a permanent basis for about a two-year posting, yep. he built up experience. And we'd go and do a, a quick tour around New Guinea with him as, as a familiarisation. Right. Uh, and you really, you, you, he went and he picked a few places that were difficult strips to go in and out of. A, one comes to mind called Porgra. And uh, the Air Force had known that one well because they crashed a caribou there. <laughs> uh, it was uh, about 7,000 feet altitude and quite a big slope on it, one-way strip completely. And uh, they tried to go around, and the aeroplane just didn't have the performance. Okay. It just flew into the ground uh, past yeah. the strip. But, but that was one note taken to and you were showing, you know, well, well, this is something you don't do. There's a wreck sitting up there. Yeah. Even for 21-year-olds, that's a good lesson, isn't it? Oh, they yes. Pay it, attention it, it, that it, point. It, it does bring the point home. Yeah. Mm. What about the life there, though, just when you're not flying? What was it like living up there? Well, you, most of the time, even though when we were back at the main barracks in the Moresby, we were living in a tent. Okay. So it hadn't really progressed much since World War II. No. Uh, uh, time away, uh, uh, there were two other main bases, Wewak and uh, Wanamo, and uh, there there were barracks, uh, fairly rudimentary barracks, uh, uh, Catering was, was reasonable. Uh, fr everything fresh was the problem, to get fresh in. That was, that was the big problem. They seemed to manage to have a good supply of beer. That, yeah. was, that probably kept everybody happy. 
but uh, uh, everything was frozen basically meat wise um, one of the things I learned to do without milk and tea or coffee because uh, it was all powdered milk yeah right uh, this is before the days of long life milk uh, so I, I now drink black tea or black coffee right. that's a hangover from New Guinea days I suppose it's <laughs> a great story but uh, uh, other than that uh, you know I suppose we were pretty busy uh, because two aircraft and basically the detachment commander didn't do a lot of flying so you had two pilots an aircraft each so you were, you were away a fair bit uh, and you're young and you have a, an eye on a career later on somewhere you want hours and uh, so you, you did fly the airplanes and we had basically a hundred hours available to us every month in the aircraft because the airplanes had a hundred hourly service inspection they'd fly a team up from Amber of seven fitters they'd do the 200 hourly, so every 28 days there was going to be a 100 hourly inspection done, so uh, there are times when you think, well let's go and do a few circuits, or let's go somewhere. Uh, uh, one of the times I went to a place called, um, oh, it was a known uh, base where there was World War II aircraft. Uh, should have asked me this before I came out. <laughs> it was inland from uh, Nadzab, Tadji. Uh, and I was told, go and have a look there. And actually, interesting, I took a photograph of uh, three or four air cobras, three or four uh, kitty hawks. Uh, there was a B-24 wreck there. And another wreck that uh, I think might have been Japanese, was a steel tube frame round engine. But I'm told afterwards that if I'd have really walked over to the jungle cliff on the edge, there was a lot more over there. Right. But uh, one of the... Kitty Hawks I photographed, the tail number, is the one that Murray Griffiths restored. Oh, right. Mm. Yep. Which is now flying in France, uh, which okay. is a long, mm. a long, long mm. way from, well, home in every sense of the yes. word. And that's an interesting story too. Another one that was there that you may or may not have seen or realised, but uh, is the one that's now flying at Ardmore with Frank Parker and Liz Needham. Okay. also came out of Tadji. Came out of Tadji. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that was one of my Sunday afternoon trips. Uh, the fitter and I said, oh, do you want to go and have a look at me? He said yes, and I said, oh, we've got hours in the aeroplane. So uh, we went down there for a look, and uh, I took a few photographs. Yeah. Unfortunately, they were, they were colour slides, and gee, they faded badly. Right, mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But then you've got the memories. I mean, what, part of the thing here in this kind of flying career is that you get to have all sorts of experiences. You don't know what lies ahead when you're starting out, and you look back, and it's, uh, I know, talking to a lot of the... Uh, pilots I work with, it's it's often been a, a fascinating and varied career in directions you never expected and you've obviously done quite a lot of different flying. Um, but I think we ought to, to just um, come back to your, your Cessna 180 as well because that's a great story. And um, How did you end up here today with this aeroplane and, and what's the story? Well, um, you have to blame my wife, basically. Who's <laughs> <laughs> just, just out of hearing, we think. <laughs> we were over at the air show at, uh, at um, yeah, uh, South Australia. Jamestown? Jamestown. Uh, and we're sitting around in South Australia having a red wine barbecue afterwards. And our son rang up and said, uh, well, Dad, there's an Exxon 180 for sale. And I said, oh, yes. And, and had another red wine. <laughs> and we flew home the next day. And about three days later, he rang up and said, oh, it's the serial number is 340. My wife went off, looked at the logbook, said, you're flying it. We've got to have it. <laughs> so, so we, we have it. Wonderful, wonderful. And where, had you flown that in, in Australia mostly or...? Um no, mostly New Guinea. Mostly New Guinea, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and a funny little story here, one of the things I enjoy my bit of the job in terms of research and writing is that we came across a photograph uh, online, um, somebody else very kindly posted it up and it was of 340 in, in New Guinea. Unfortunately we haven't been able to high, locate a high-res photograph of it, a copy of that photo yet, but it's on the list of things to do, so okay. Murray has that for his collection because it's great if you can bring these things together, the aircraft, the pilot and the photograph would be a, would be a neat sight. Yes, so, it's funny really, I don't have a lot of photographs of the aircraft that I flew in New Guinea, because you took photographs out of the aircraft, not, not on the aircraft. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And once again, they're slides, and it's quite disappointing. They were basically all ectochrome. Right. Okay. Uh, and uh, the old slides I've got, the old Kodachrome, remember the old ASA, yes. 8 ASA Kodachrome? Yeah. They seem to have stood up, yeah. but the, the higher speed ones haven't. They've washed out quite badly. And, and New Guinea's not a good environment for um, photography and lots of other things. Uh, no, well, well. I, when we bought the airplane, I went through my slide collection and I picked up no photographs of 340, but I got mm. a few photographs of, of 180s in New Guinea, but so most of them were inside looking out. But the 180 is, is um, perhaps the, the greatest connection, but you have a couple of other aircraft, and um, one of them is a very sleek aeroplane. Tell us about your, your very fast-looking aeroplane. It's very fast, I think, isn't it? Well, yes. It's, it it's, just it's, look it. it's, it's beautiful. Yes. It's Marchetti SF260. Uh, I think I mentioned before that we did a trip, our first ever long trip in the, in the CT4 and to Caboolture. And uh, uh, we'd sort of planned on making it a, a two-day trip. Uh, uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't flown light aircraft for about uh, 30 years after right. I went to airlines. And uh, uh, we thought, oh, well, you know, we'll stop somewhere along the way. We picked up very good tailwinds out of, out of Kyneton, 150 knot ground speed. So we diverted to Dubbo, which was a bit further than I'd planned, uh, had lunch, refuelled, got going again, and then we're doing 155 knot ground speed. And said, oh, well, we'll go overhead to Toowoomba. If we're tired, we'll stop there. If the winds stop, we'll stop there. They didn't stop. We were on the ground in Caboolture at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I thought, well, this is too good to be true. What aeroplane does 155 knots? <laughs> you and, you uh, like to speak. And, and that started the search. And, of course, eventually um, everything pointed towards a Marchetti. Yeah. But, of course, where to acquire one was then the problem. And uh, our son was just into the early days of the internet and searching yeah. and uh, he found uh, uh, a few for sale in the States and we tracked down three to look at. Uh, he, he being a lamey, uh, he, at this stage he was working in Canada so it wasn't hard to bring him right. down to meet up. I looked at one in uh, Santa Monica, uh, one over in Illinois with courtesy aircraft uh -huh. and the one that I was keenest on was from a farm uh, in North Dakota. And uh, uh, we had a look at the one in, say, in Illinois, and, and we rang up the farmer that night and said, well, we'll be up there tomorrow. He said, I've just sold it. Oh. <laughs> so that, that gave us the choice between the, um, the one in Illinois and this, this one, and yeah. this, this is by far the better aeroplane. Right. The interesting thing is that it went to South Africa from the factory. Okay. Uh, spent its first about four years there. Flew quite a bit, and uh, we've, we have quite tracked down what it did, but it had to be government owned. We have a lot of a lot of paperwork as to who maintained it, but no one. We have the registration, but we don't really have uh, an owner. But at the time, apartheid, and they were mm. banned from buying military equipment, so I assume it went to a civil company, yeah. and it spent a lot of time at a place called Messina, which was I gather on the Rhodesian Zimbabwe border. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it it wasn't armed. It doesn't have any hard points. It's not that model, but uh, it 
probably did reconnaissance. That, that's the best guess. And for those that are not familiar with the aircraft, I'm not particularly familiar with the type, but there is a military version which does have hard points and, uh, and was used in, in those areas for those kind of jobs. So um, this would be quite likely to be used as a backup and reconnaissance, as you say. Yes, uh, Mr Gaddafi had 250 of them. Wow, I didn't realise that many. Well, he, he probably kept the factory and the spare system running, so <laughs> I don't know what will happen now whether our spares will be still available. It's a slight change in the factory requirements but, there. But, but no, it's, it's definitely uh, not in military colours now. It's in an amazing scheme. Um, we're just looking at it here. It's a, a overall yellow, but with a checker flag sort of peeling uh, off the nose in the front of the aircraft. And uh, yes, it's an aeroplane that looks fast sitting still anyway, but with that scheme it particularly does. It's a, it's a very impressive beast. And you're very happy with it, I think, right? Oh, yes. It's a, a beautiful cross-country aeroplane. And uh, we cruise at, uh, if you want to sort of go 75% power, we cruise 180 knots and you've got four hours of fuel. It's not a lot of time, but of course the speed gives you the distance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the furthest we've been in is Darwin. We went up to visit our son. We thought, well, we actually went to Kingaroy to a reunion. Oh, well, we're in Kingaroy. Why not go up to Longreach, the uh, Qantas and the Stockman Hall of Fame? Yeah. We got to Kingaroy and said, well, Darwin's not that far away. <laughs> so we, we went on to Darwin. Yeah. And then came back down through the centre. At that stage, Lake Air had water in it. So uh, that again was a, something to see. Yes, mm. yeah, very mm. rare. And, and that's actually a really good point, is, um, and leads us in a way back to your CT4, which has a, uh, a terrific story uh, too, in that um, uh, I was just telling Dave on the way here, but um, it was used, I think, in 1979, is that right, for the, um, the, the commemorative flight from Point Cook? up to Darwin, your CT4? Yes, the, the recreation. Yeah. Uh, just, um, we, we actually, when they were auctioning, I think they were auctioning off 36 aircraft at the time of this one auction in Bankstown. And we saw this aircraft with a little map on the side and uh, we sort of put a tick against it. Yeah. Uh, and um, we bid on a couple and uh, no, they were too expensive. And as the bidding went on, they were getting cheaper. And finally, uh, put the hand up and they said yes. And we said, we've got 40. And that's the aeroplane that did the recreation. And this was a, a 70 years recreation of the first RAF aircraft, a B-2, to fly from Point Cook to Darwin to survey a route uh, for the f first aircraft coming on the England-Australia trip after World War I. And uh, uh, the map says where it went through western New South Wales, western Queensland, uh, bottom of the Northern Territory and into Darwin. And when the aircraft arrived in Darwin, uh, the Smith brothers and their Vemi were actually sort of uh, on the airfield of Fanny Bay. Which is, I think it's an amazing thing and for those outside Australia, and some Australians are probably not familiar, the, the distance that involves is, is phenomenal. For our North yeah. American uh, listeners that is the, the equivalent of flying from the bottom of the United States yeah. all the way through to Canada. Um, for the Europeans it's from the bottom of Europe all the way to the top end of Europe. It's it's, it's continental journey. And to have done that in 1919 in a B-2 um, with you know, they must have had some serious logistics arranging for fuel to be available en route as they were going. The, the endurance of a B-2 isn't very great and the speed certainly isn't and there's an awful lot of oil where you don't want it and so on. Um, and it would have actually been 70 years later in a CT-4 a, a pretty um, a big achievement as well for the, for the, um, the Air Force uh, flyers of the time. Well, the, the CT-4 cheated a little bit and they had a DC-3 as a backup. Oh, that's, yes, <laughs> that, that very, went along very with definitely them. But, but, you know, I do that too. <laughs> but your comment about the distance, to give you some idea, the B-2 took a month. Yeah. Uh, the CT-4 took four days. But the other thing, uh, the B-2 uh, had an engine failure uh, at, well, near Cloncurry. Right. And it turned out to be a burnt valve. And uh, the engineer on board, the B-2, uh, went to the railway workshops and said, what's your hardest metal? I said, oh, a railway axle. Turned up a new valve, 
installed it, and off they went. Wow. And pretty slick <laughs> that's very and, and it, again it's easy to forget that back in those days we had very very skilled tradesmen yeah. um, fitters who would be very skilled with woodwork fabric work metal work um, obviously some of them specialized to a greater degree but they turned their hands to a huge range and that kind of um, uh, achievement wasn't that unusual in fact similar things happened when the Vimy carried on in yeah. Australia and they had to yeah. do some pretty extemporary repairs to to the, these engines um, how long did the Vimy take to get um, out to Australia that, that it's true um, I can't remember actually, I should have done my homework, but uh, they had at least one major engine failure where they had to put it down into a, into a, um, a field and uh, the locals, once they'd repaired the engine, the locals flattened out this, this huge kind of kunai grass, I think it was a, a other kind of environment, and then they managed to get it out of there. And those of us that have been lucky enough to see the Vimy replica fly, the idea of that thing flying all the way, as that replica did too, all the way from uh, from Britain to Australia at what seems to be walking speed when you see it go overhead is, is absolutely amazing. I think my favourite anecdote with the, uh, the Vimy story is that um, they had uh, two pilots, the, the Smith brothers, Ross and Keith Smith, um, and then two mechanics in the back, um, uh, Shires and Bennett. And uh, I think it was Bennett. Um, they decided for the crossing of the English Channel, which was a daunting start of their trip, when considering what else they crossed later would have been, in hindsight, river-sized. <laughs> um, so they decided to put a, a bicycle in, uh, no, a, a, a car in a tube around their waists. And as the aircraft climbed, um, the pressure changed, and they were starting to be forced out of the rear cockpit by these expanding. So they quickly punctured those and took took risk of drowning rather than be risk of being thrown out of the aeroplane by the safety device. So I think safety devices have come on a long way since then, haven't they? Actually, actually just getting back though to the subject of the replacement of the valves, Yes. if anyone's uh, visiting the Army Museum at uh, Oakey, Queensland, Queensland yes. um, they've actually got both valves in the museum. Wonderful. They've got the burnt valve and the replacement valve. Right. And that's yeah. one of the things that museums do really well. It's just so easy to overlook as you see the big objects sometimes and, and, um, and you, know, you focus on those. But uh, most museums have little display cases and you think, oh, what, what's this? And in that case, it's a couple of valves. Oh, what's the story? And you go away with a, a real education about what, what people can achieve. And uh, that's been a thing for us on this trip, Dave, so oh, far, has, hasn't it? It has, definitely, yeah. yeah. The other thing, too, that going back to the story again, if anyone is visiting Darwin, there's quite a good aviation museum at Darwin, Darwin Airport. Yeah. And in there, they've got a, uh, a photograph of the 10,000 pound cheque that the government wrote for the Smith Brothers. Right. And also a photograph of the B2 and the uh, pilot and uh, the engineer at Fanny Bay. Wonderful. So you can actually you can put a face yes. to that, 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 that adventure. So when the uh, Vimy replica replicated that trip and came back to Australia, yes. did you get your CD4 together with it? No, no. 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 Uh, what year was that? Can you remember? Uh, that would have been um, uh, 1994. In fact, I remember that because the, the numbers worked remarkably well for the, uh, the commemoration. Yeah. And uh, I was actually at Farnborough um, in the UK then, and I watched them set off. And okay. they, they kind of, okay. they also cheated, but I, again, we give them credit for that because they, they had a, uh, um, a government aircraft factory army nomad with them for the, for the, um, uh, the trip to, back to Australia as a chase aircraft. I think if I was a Vimy, I'd like a chase aircraft uh, I, I think I'd rather be in the Vimy than a Nomad <laughs> going around the world, that's for sure. Well, <laughs> the Nomad has, I think, one of those aircraft that's had quite a bad reputation, that some of which is undeserved. But we'll, we'll skip over that for the moment because we're here with Murray rather than <laughs> arguing about good and bad aeroplanes. Um, but yeah, let's, let's talk about the CT4. It's a fascinating bit of history and it's great to fly that, but it's a great aeroplane all round as well. It's, it's a beautiful aeroplane. Um, you know, people often ask me, of course, which do you prefer to fly? 
and uh, my answer always is the one I'm in at the moment. Yes. Uh, but uh, now the 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 three are. Uh, I'm fortunate to have a diverse group of aircraft, really, in that uh, if you you want to go somewhere with uh, 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 either a rough strip, short strip, uh, you want to carry more than just uh, cut lunch, the 180 is a perfect aeroplane. 120 knot cruise, uh, four and a half hours endurance, so quite useful for our distances. Yep. And uh, it's a most comfortable aeroplane to travel in. Uh, yes. uh, you sit upright. Uh, You've got a roof over your head so that the sun's not on you, sort of, a, and uh, you can trim it out and you can really fly it long distances as long as it's smooth air just with your feet. Uh, it's, a, it's a very stable aeroplane. Of course, you want to go somewhere in a hurry. Uh, I draw a line of about 300 nautical miles, and at that distance, the Marchetti then, the speed starts to yeah. come into its own. You start to save time. Yeah. You know, just for instance, now uh, the Tamora Air Show is coming up uh, on the weekend, and the Marchetti is now 20 to Tamora. The CT4 is uh, uh, about two hours twenty. Yeah. So to give you some idea of the of the yeah. of the very different, yeah, the uh, difference. day out. <laughs> mm. So it's it's the aeroplane. It's the fun aeroplane to go anywhere really. And but if you want to fly and have fun around the local airfield, the CT4 is perfect. It's just such a delightful aeroplane to fly. It's fingertip, uh, fully aerobatic. Yep. The only failing is it doesn't have inverted oil, and uh, you get negative G and you lose your oil pressure. And when you own the engine, that's something that you don't do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, That's actually a very good point. We had an excellent discussion uh, with Matt Henderson um, about his uh, CT4 experiences and the history, his research and so on, his aircraft. And I think I think uh, both Dave, yourself and, and Matt learnt stuff off each other in mm. terms of the CT4. It was always more defined. Yeah. Um, but yes, I think one of the things we didn't talk about with Matt is, is the world of difference between flying an aircraft uh, for Her Majesty for the Army or the, or the Air Force and flying an aeroplane that you're responsible for yourself. Obviously, you're very conscious of that. Do you see find yourself flying differently other than the obvious sense of caution? Or Well, y y yes. Uh, you know, um, the old story once again, uh, I can go back to the 180. We used to have little quiet competitions amongst each other so he could do the shortest landing. <laughs> and, uh, yes. uh, you know, you'd certainly, you'd, uh, you could land and bash across the runway. Yeah. A little bit of crosswind to help you out, sort yeah. of, uh, as an excuse. It was a crosswind landing after all. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but at that stage, you're obviously standing on the brakes and the aeroplane's standing on its nose. Yeah. And, you know, you're, you're 21 and sort of, and someone else is going to replace the prop or the engine, sort of, yep. uh, if you have a prop strike. Whereas now, of course, you, uh, uh, you're rather gentle. Do you want to, I don't land across the runways any longer. No, <laughs> no. And uh, one of the things that several people have said to us is they see themselves very much as custodians of the aircraft now, which is almost the reverse of what you've just said, which is the military attitude of, there'll be another one along if I break this one. Um, do you see yourself as custodian of these? Is that where the future Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, yes. yes. You, you, you just, you just, you've got a loan of the aeroplane. Yeah, that's all. A very expensive loan. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, people have boats, uh, people have car, vintage cars, yeah. sort of, uh, and uh, I have aeroplanes. True. Mm. And you're enjoying the aeroplanes, mm. which, is, which is part of the thing. And actually your collection is, is a collection of history as well as, the, it's not just aeroplanes, but they're quite historic aeroplanes in themselves. Yeah, yes, so yes they are really, when you think that uh, the CT4 came out of the Air Force and this, uh, just trying to think, there you've caught me whether they came out of the first batch or the second batch. I'd uh, say the first batch because the second batch were the ones destined for Rhodesia mm. and uh, they were confiscated in New Zealand and finally the RAF got them. We, we don't have the wiring or the hard points on that CD4. Right. Yeah. 
So yes, it's the, the first match. It had a, you know, quite a role. Well, uh, the interesting thing, of course, is it's still the basic trainer for the Air Force. Indeed, uh, yes. Uh, but uh, it's, it's then the, um, the Marchetti actually had a role in South Africa rather than just simply a, uh, most of them went to uh, um, airline flying schools, military basic training. Actually, there's another little interesting story about the Marchetti. Um, it was built, I assume, as a, as a civilian aircraft. And the Italian Air Force, uh, I'm telling this as, as I was told from the agent in, in uh, Santa Monica. Yeah. Uh, when the Italian Air Force said, oh, that could be a good basic trainer. So they got in it and said, uh, uh, there's uh, no room in it to wear a helmet because it's quite a low canopy. Yeah. So that, that's simple. We'll lower the seat. So they lowered the seat, and then the control column was up around about eye level. <laughs> and they said, oh, this is all right, simple, we'll cut the stick off. Yeah. So they did that. Then, of course, the aileron pressures were too high. And uh, unfortunately, mine is an A model, but the later models have servos on the ailerons. Oh, and then right. that, that yeah. solved all the problems. Yeah. So I've, above about 140 knots, I've got quite heavy ailerons. I think that the thing that uh, we've jumped past is from your army flying career to owning the Cessna today, and there's a big bit in between we jumped over there, which is, I think, predominantly airline flying. But can you run us through, obviously, you're with the army, Papua New Guinea. Um, how long did you stay in? In the army, it was six years. It was a six, uh, well, basically a five-year once you finished the course. So six years, including basic training. Yeah. And uh, <coughs> I was a bit fortunate as the army time came up, uh, uh, TAA was people in our Trans-Australia Airlines said, please come and fly for us. And that again was interesting because my first airplane there was a Vicant. Oh, nice. So that was a bit different. Uh, unfortunately, the wings fell off them. So uh, I then, they were grounded, so I then back and flew the usual progression, the Fokker Friendship, uh -huh. uh, then uh, DC-9. And uh, I never flew the 727, to some regrets, but uh, it wasn't to me an appealing aircraft as a first officer. As a captain, it was an excellent aeroplane with three crew. Yeah. But I stayed in the DC-9 until I picked up a Fokker command right. and then went back to DC-9 command. And eventually I went and worked uh, in Europe on a charter airline flying MD-80s. Well, well, in between times I flew for Compass 2 on the MD-80. That, that brought the MD-80 conversion in, which was just really a, a big DC-9. And uh, when Compass 2 uh, uh, fell over, uh, there was a, a charter company in Sweden that was expanding and looking for MD-80 pilots. And I spent three years over there, all told. And it was a, a perfect existence, really, uh, too good to be true. We used to go over there for the summer. Yeah. And uh, they only really wanted uh, the, the extra capacity during the summer months. Right. And so you basically went from Sweden to every known airfield in the Mediterranean, North Africa, Canary Islands. Right. And, uh, I used to wake up in the morning and say, this is too good to be true. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm being paid to be here. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. And interesting just to pick up on the, uh, the Viscount. Uh, Dave and I were lucky enough to sit in the cockpit of the Viscount down at the Moorabbin Air Museum, um, which is, uh, I've never been in the cockpit before. And um, if you haven't been down there recently, Murray, you should go because they've worked very hard to reactivate the cockpit. They've got a lot of the lights working again. Okay. Um, they've got the, uh, the various fans and things going. And I was impressed to notice it was a proper British aeroplane because the handle on the 
window was made of wood. So if it hasn't had got wood, it's not a British aircraft. <laughs> well, the other thing interesting, uh, uh, the Viscount had the same control wheel as the Lincoln. Which, oh, right. Because they must have had uh, bins full of these after the war yes. when production stopped the Lancaster. Yeah. And uh, they went to the Lincoln. And there was um, uh, the brake uh, right. control, a little handbrake lever. Yep. Same thing, again, identical uh, pneumatic brakes. I've, talk, I've talked to a couple of pilots who flew the Viscount in New Zealand and they reckon it was a lovely aircraft to fly. Did you find that? Yes, it was. Uh, it would have to be the, the easiest aeroplane to land. Okay. Uh, literally, you could put it on the runway and there were four lights that told you the engine had gone, or the props had gone to the ground fine. You'd see these wink on and off and on and off as they settle, as they settle on the aldeos. And you know, particularly on a wet runway, uh, you'd say, am I on the ground yet? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. It, it, it boosted the ego enormously. I was going to say, <laughs> anything that makes you look good is your yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I've heard that as, uh, generally, I think, and, and as a passenger, uh, it's always been a highly regarded, partly because of the huge windows that did had those those massive ovals and, and so on. Um, so you were flying airlines for quite a few years, and then presumably was it retirement and, and where we are now? Yes, basically, yes. Um, I came back and uh, I'd been planning on, on an aircraft of some sort um, uh, for retirement. Yeah. And uh, looked and uh, went to Oshkosh in '89 and thought, oh, uh, I really had a quite. I wanted something that was fun to fly, uh, and uh, I thought I might have to build one here. Sort of. So I looked at a. I had a ride actually, a demonstration ride on a glass here. Oh yes. And uh, then I heard the CT4s were possibly coming on the market, so then I concentrated on that. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and chased down a CT4. And I think that was, in, again, one of those fortunate things is that, uh, in hindsight, you'd probably say the CT4 has been a lot more fun than you really could have expected it to be. Um, oh, yes, yes. I really don't know what I would, I'm not a builder, so yeah. I really don't know what I would have, what I would have done, really. Sort of a, uh, I did look at a Piper Cub. Uh -huh. uh, at that stage, in 89, Piper had just gone into production, or re reproduction, reproduction yeah. of yeah. Piper Cub. And uh, I also saw over there uh, the... Aircraft called a Globe, that was a Globe Swift modified to a Swift Fury by right. Mr. Lepressi. Yeah. That, that was a beautiful, promising aeroplane, but it was too expensive at that stage for me. Yeah. It was $110,000, whereas right. a Piper was about 48000 Yeah. So the Piper was affordable. The other one was the Dream Machine. Yeah. But of course, it never went into production, unfortunately. But it would have been very similar in, in performance and uh, flying qualities to the Marchetti, I think, probably. Right. Just jumping sideways, one of the things, again, tying in with talking to, uh, to Matt Henderson, um, you fly with Matt quite a lot uh, uh, together and, and also as part of the, the trainer formation team. And I've been lucky enough to fly, I think, with both of you down from here to Point Cook for um, the interactive flying displays that the museum puts on on a regular basis. And I think we should say a little plug here for the, um, uh, the interactive flying displays, which is an unusual, I think, in some ways it's unique that a national level collection is able to put regular three times a week um, flying displays on with a single aircraft demonstration uh, of the aircraft handling and then a chance to meet the pilot and, and, and ask questions from the public all with no charge to come on to the base and to see this um, and uh, critical to make this happening is the volunteers as well as the Air Force aircraft that do it we have a, a good selection of volunteer pilots who bring their own aircraft such as Matt and Murray and um, this last year or so or last couple of years you've been doing more um, as formations and so on going down together and, and meeting up with other guys there um, that's great uh, tell us a bit about flying formation with a mixture of civilian Air Force and Army pilots? Well, well the, the good thing is um, we do it often enough to be fairly current at it. And then uh, the Air Force 
uh, usually sort of uh, before we we do a fly past, we go out and have a practice session. Yeah. Either come back and land, or have the practice session, then go and do the fly past. Because uh, there's now um, quite a number of fly pasts over the shrine, uh, over various places. Uh, last weekend we did fly past over the war cemetery. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, the uh, the actual the interactive, as you say, sort of interesting. Uh, we used to have two CT4s, which again gave you fairly regular formation practice. Uh, that seems to have uh, just stopped a change of change of uh, uh, of RAF personnel, and uh, uh, I think that's probably going to come back again. Right. Uh, unfortunately, my aircraft was out of service for about six months, yeah. uh, waiting for an engine, and then. Uh, when the engine came along, it was out of service again for about another three months, waiting for a new cow. <laughs> so uh, the aircraft wasn't available, but it's now uh, fully serviceable, yep. and they're going to tomorrow next weekend. Which is terrific, and we'll see you with the. F I understand whether you're planning a seven-ship uh, formation. Is yes, that right? that, that's the plan. Yep. Yes. Oh, yeah. terrific. We're really looking forward to seeing that. Yes. Oh, it's a, it's a, as we discussed, it's a great display. But maybe, Murray, could you tell us a little bit as a separate uh, little yeah. segment here but about what it is you do when you do an interactive flying display for someone who hasn't perhaps seen that? Um, I know what it is because I'm often yes. on the ground talking while you're doing the flying, but uh, and it's a terrific thing. And I think one thing I would say before Murray, I hand over to Murray is that for people involved in aviation, it's easy to forget how many people have no idea how aeroplanes work. So every time you go up and the first time you're inverted or you're the first manoeuvre you, you do, all sorts of people are going ooh and ah and, and they're absolutely amazed, which to most people in aviation, particularly display aviation, that's, that's almost routine, but uh, there's a lot more to it. So how does it work, Murray? Well, basically the, the aim of the whole thing is to, to meet the pilot and, and talk to the pilot and sort of and ask questions. And the, the format really is, is a quick introduction of the aeroplane. Uh, we have a, uh, a time slot we have to adhere to uh, of half an hour, yep. where they close the airfield down for it, with a restricted area, yep. and uh, do that. And it's really just a, a very quick look at the capabilities of the aeroplane, uh, so slow flight, a uh, couple of high-speed passes, uh, uh, aerobatics, if the aircraft's aerobatic yep. available and then landing and talk to the people and let them ask you questions. And that can go on for 10 minutes or it can go on for almost hours. <laughs> it's amazing, yes. We, sometimes we have school groups, uh, maybe have a couple of school groups here, and if they're the right age, they're, they're absolutely blown away and fascinated. They just want to ask question after question after question. But it's a great thing to be able to take aviation to the public or invite people onto a, a military airfield, again, that's often a restricted environment, um, and get them to get up close to the pilot, get up close to the aircraft and have a, a chance to see how these things actually work. And, and it's um, uh, a great thing pushing back against the fact that nowadays most airfields have a big fence and they're on friendly pace, places because of the security requirements we're you know, um, now forced to abide by in a lot of cases. So this is a big big thing in, in the other direction and um, I know, um, I'm sure Murray would agree, but I know the pilots all enjoy doing it and, and find it very rewarding. Is, is that the case for you? Yes, it is actually. Yeah. You know, it's, it's once again you're showcasing a bit, bit of history as you mentioned before. Yeah. Plus you hit the nail on the head, the fact they can get close to it. Uh, you, know, you stand on one side of a, a low fence, yeah. uh, uh, literally a, a metre away from, from the public, and uh, the aeroplane is just a wingtip away, that's all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I said, no, we're not a wingtip, shall I? Wingspan away. Yeah. So uh, uh, 
Well, the, they can't touch it. They, they can get very close. And it's not a very big wingspan on that thing either. <laughs> well, no, 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 I suppose, no, I suppose it isn't. But it's simple things like they actually they can watch you strapping in. You know, yes. and no doubt, uh, James, in your comment, yes. you, you make the comment uh, that you're putting on a, a safety harness. That you've got, the, in the CT4's case, the five-point harness, yep. different to your lap and sash in the car. Yep. You put on a helmet, uh, gloves in case of fire. Uh, you've got a, a fire, fire retardant suit on. Yeah. All, the, all those things that, that, you know, if you're travelling in a commercial airline, there's just someone in a suit and tie up front uh, and uh, goes to an air show and someone's uh, uh, 200 plus metres away yeah. Uh, yeah. behind a big fence. Yeah. Yes. I think another thing, um, uh, as you were saying in a way about the, 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 the Viscount making you look good with the landings, uh, one of the dangers with aviation is that pilots get put on pedestals and, and hero worship. But I think you'd probably agree, and I'm handing over to you here, but you know, pilots come from all walks of life, and there's good pilots and not so good pilots, but um, they're human beings with all of the, the, the strengths and weaknesses. That We shouldn't have hero worship. We have, should have people going, hey, I could do that. That's something I could do when I grow up. Or... Some people have learned to fly in their 90s. It's, it's, uh, it's something that a lot of more people can do than they realise. Well, that's something that I always finish uh, my uh, talk down at Point Cook and say to children, you know, really, really sort of, I knew I wanted to fly at five. No. Uh, you might want to too. Think about it. It's, it's when you've got children, it's particularly. Yeah. It's, it's a chance of a career, sort of. And uh, uh, I found it very rewarding, as I often say. Uh, for 35 years, I was paid to enjoy myself. Yeah. <laughs> Can't really say a lot better than that, can no, you? No. Yes. Don't it's tell anybody that. <laughs> it's a secret, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> well, I think that's a terrific note to uh, to pull it together uh, there, Dave. Yeah. Um, we'd like to thank Murray very much and, and his wife uh, Andrea, who uh, who is standing by while we're uh, while we're talking. And we've had and we'll put a photograph up if we can. Uh, yes. A very attentive dog, uh, beautiful red kelpie called Lucky, attending us at the moment. So it's been a real family affair too. Thank you very much, Murray. Okay. It's been uh, fascinating to talk about the uh, Cessna 180. I didn't know very much. Yes. I've, I've seen uh, yeah, photographs of them, but I had never actually really heard or read anything about them. So that was really interesting. I'll just put a little, little add on to that. When James is talking about pilots being put on pedestals, very simple. Go and fly, do a few circuits in the Cessna 180, and it soon brings you back to work. <laughs> I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. Thank you very much, Murray. That's been a terrific interview. Thank you. Thank, thank you, too. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.